Well, if you don't know the uh, Bible account of Samson, it is very violent, as you just saw. And it really brings up some questions about the Bible. Does God endorse this kind of violence? What about the ethics of war? But Brandon Marshall, someone we know from our generation, and Samson had a lot in common. They were folks who were very, very strong, very, very powerful. They were household names in their day, and yet they were totally out of control. They could master an awful lot of things, but they could not master themselves. Their lust, their anger, their appetites. And the story of Samson in our series playbook is about how God works with broken people. And on Sundays we all look good, but if we get, if we had the video scenes of our worst moments up on screen, we might be embarrassed too at the way in which we lose our temper, don't look quite as nice as we say we do or come across. And then the playbook series, this particular one, is about how God works with us in our brokenness and how God worked with a man in his brokenness named Samson. But it also brings up issues like when is anger appropriate, when isn't it? Now, I want to look at Samson's life at two types of anger. Bad anger. Bad anger always drives an ego. If you were to find bad anger driving around in your life, you're going to find it's always motivated by ego or self-centeredness. It drives an ego because it, it doesn't care what happens to other people. It doesn't get too impatient about when other people get injustice or other people have bad stuff happen. But when you're on the line, when you are disrespected, oh my goodness, you get angry. When you feel unappreciated, boom, you get angry. When you're inconvenienced, boom, you get angry. You don't mind if other people get inconvenienced. As long as it doesn't affect you. Bad anger is almost always driven by or motivated by ego. I remember years ago, uh, I was uh, taking the kids out and we were working on a clubhouse together. And because of where the clubhouse was, we actually had to take the jet ski over to the clubhouse to work on it. And so I brought all my tools because we had to bring it over to this area to work on the clubhouse until we came back. And on the way back, I gave them all my tools on the uh, tube that was pulling behind the jet ski. And I said, now make sure the tools don't fall. Those are all my tools. Got it, Dad. Got it, Dad. Sort of half listening kind of thing. And so I'm pulling around the jet ski. I get up to the dock and I go to get up onto my ramp and I sort of goose it a bit. Vroom! To get up onto the jet ski trailer. Well, that little vroom was enough that the two of them were not paying attention. And boom, was all my tools falling off blub, 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 into the lake. And I erupted. What did I tell you today? He had one thing to do. One thing. I told you to watch my tools. Now, everything, you know, the cost of those things to get all those back. You know, oh my, you're going to talk about the cost. They're starting to tear up. I'm getting to see the impact of my anger on them. But in that moment, I didn't care about them as much as I cared about me. It was my cost. It was my inconvenience. I had to go find these tools. I just, oh my goodness, where's this coming from? Get in the car. Die for my tools later. And I realized, wow. It's one thing to say, hey, need to teach my kids responsibility. There's some important lessons here. But this anger was coming from a real place of ego, and I had to apologize to my kids. Man, I'm sorry for that. I do want you to be more responsible, but honestly, probably it's partly my fault. Bad anger is almost always driven by ego. Now, good anger, and there's such a thing as good ego, if bad anger is driven by ego, good anger is driven by a Yugo. Now, nobody likes a Yugo, do they? I don't want to drive a Yugo. It's a criminal car. Yugo is selflessness. You get angry 
But for good reason. It, it's, you're angry because the procedures we have here are affecting our customer. And because I care about our customer, I want to make sure that we fix this so we're doing it right. It's the kind of anger that says, you go first. I'm angry at my own self-centeredness. It's destroying my marriage. God, help me with my own brokenness because I want you to go first. I want you to have priority. I want you to matter. I'm angry at the injustice of sex slave because little girls should not be forced in these kind of circumstances. I'm angry about the poverty in the world. But it's always you focused. You go. You go first, not me. You go first. I'm angry at things that that produce self-centeredness. Meets with the son or daughter. You're angry at not them, but the destructive pattern that's destroying their life. God has that kind of anger, good anger. Becky Pippert, in her book, describes this, I think, in one of the best ways. She says, we tend to be taken aback at this thought that God, you know, that God would be angry at anything. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? No, 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 we pride ourselves in our tolerances of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem anyway? Here's it. Love detests what destroys the beloved. A real love stands against the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. I don't care enough to even care. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Is it just, ah, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to the survivor of the Cambodian killing fields. Or to someone who lost a family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and hostile toward injustice. So there is a kind of good anger that's others focused. And while bad anger drives an ego, good anger drives a ego. And what's amazing about this strange story of Samson is that God is always working with him when he's angry. And it's not the good anger anyway. This is a very angry, bad anger, ego-centered kind of guy. But God works through Samson's bad anger to transform him and to change him in a very wasted life. And I'm hoping as we study his life that God might challenge us. God might challenge us to move, to wrestle with what's driving us in our anger. And what might it be to be more other-centered in our approach to life. Or look at Samson's birth we'll look at his life and then we'll look at his death so begin with his birth it's pretty amazing about his birth is this guy was destined for greatness i mean absolutely destined for greatness and and god gave him talent god gave him skill he was a military general a judge was a combination of a spiritual leader a political leader and a four-star general military leader there was this terrorist group ironic with what's going on this week so imagine what's happened this week with the terrorist attacks that have happened in Paris. That's exactly what was going on during this time. The Philistines were this ISIS-type terrorist attack, attacking the people of God. So God recruited, trained, and equipped Samson to be the kind of general who could fight against these kind of terrorist attacks. And yet this general doesn't fight for anyone unless it involves him. He doesn't care what's happening to his family or his friends. He only fights and plays For his own ego. He's the ball hog on the soccer field. He's the guy that takes all the credit in the business project. He only gets involved when it makes him look good. He only gets mad when he's discredited or he's inconvenienced. You remember our pattern we've been looking at. Israel's at the top of its game. And right when it's the top of the game, it throws out God's playbook. 
And God the gentleman says, I'm going to remove my blockers. And then the other team, Team Philistines in this case, comes in, tackles the nation of Israel. They're like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. God help us. God raises up a new quarterback called Judges. In this case, it's Samson. In this case, that's exactly where we are. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And God delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And now Samson's going to be raised up to help the people. And here's what happens at his birth. His mom's praying. His dad's name was Manoah. And they're praying one night, like, God, we're barren, and we can't have kids. We want to have children. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. The angel says, you're going to have a child, and he's going to be a special child. He is going to be a child that I'm going to use to begin to deliver Israel. But I want you to make him a Nazarite. To which we say, what's a Nazarite? I had a guy attending our church about a month ago. He said, hey, uh, I came from a Nazarene church. I said, oh, do you know about the Nazarite vow? He's like, what's that? So that's sort of the basis of your denomination. Um, so let me explain what a Nazarite vow is. A Nazarite vow was a commitment that a person could make that said, I'm going to set aside my son or myself for, very, for God's purposes. And it involved three things. I will not cut my hair as a way that people say, why don't you cut your hair? Because I've set up myself apart for God. I won't drink any alcohol. Sometimes you do it temporarily. In this case, you can do it for your whole life as a way of setting yourself aside for God. And third, you wouldn't touch dead things. So three things are all important. Samson is going to have my strength and favor. He doesn't have magic hair. But these three things were a sign that he was trying in some way to set himself apart for God. But man, he doesn't. As he grows up, he is destined for greatness. He has this incredible strength and power, but he only plays and gets angry when he's inconvenienced, his own ego. I got a chance to visit his hometown this is a hill I was climbing up. We got about halfway up there. It took us about an hour to get to this place, another hour to go to get to the top of where Samson lived. Because where all the other different Israelites lived down in the valley, his tribe, the tribe of Dan, decided to live up top so they could be safe. In fact, they stayed in tents for a lot longer than other people who built homes because they were so tired of this Philistine ISIS terrorist coming and ripping your, your houses down, tearing them down, burning them down, burning your fields. So they stayed up here. If you look at the right-hand picture, or your left, You'll see there is a grate. They would build these giant reservoirs there. And so way up on the plateau, you could actually see the view is amazing from up there. You can actually see hundreds of miles in all directions. And from there, you could see the different tribes of Israel being terrorized by the Philistines. You could see somebody's house burning in the distance. You could see somebody's field being burnt. But you were safe up on the plateau. You didn't have to worry about it. And Samson would watch all day long, his fellow countrymen, his fellow men, getting terrorized, getting beaten, women, children being ripped out of homes. And he had the strength to go do something about it, but I don't care. Doesn't affect me. I'm safe up here. As long as the Philistines don't mess with me, I'm not going to get involved. I don't care. They built a uh, memorial up there to this day, of what his tomb looks like, right there in that area, right next to where my wife's at. If you go a little bit further, you'll find the tomb where they say his body is now buried. But here in this area, we see a man who was born with leadership gifts, with strength, with the purpose of defending other people, of protecting other people, of helping other people. And instead of doing any of that, what we find in Samson's life is he just doesn't care. And he moves into his life, we find that the only thing he cares about is himself, his own appetites, his own indulgences. And God then in his life does this complete jiu-jitsu with him. God uses his bad 
anger to confront his ego apathy toward other people. It's pretty amazing. Think about what happened in football. You know, for years people played football a certain way. It was all about the running game. Then Bill Walsh shows up. And Bill Walsh says, I'm going to play the same game but a totally different way. I'm going to use a different strategy to use the strengths and weaknesses of other teams against them. This is exactly what God's going to do to Samson. Samson, you won't care about other people. You won't get involved in other people. You feel insulated from the terrorist attacks of the Philistines. I'm going to use your self-ego-driven anger to put you in a place where you get to feel the sting of the Philistines. In case you're not familiar with the changes that Bill Walsh brought in place, watch this quick clip. I want to show you how God used the same type of thing in Samson's life. Let's watch So God's been trying to get Samson to run down the field, and he just refuses to care about other people. So Samson says, all right. God says to Samson, I'm going to use a different strategy. I'm going to use a series of short passes in your life to use your ego against you to confront your apathy. The first short pass he does is he uses his lust against him. Not only is he not fighting the Philistines, he's partying with them. He's having drunken orgies with them, and he even falls in love with one of them. It's like all these stories you hear about the folks who go over to, um, to Iraq or Iran because they want to join ISIS. And you're like, what are you thinking? Well, that's exactly what Samson did. His lust, one day he sees a woman from Timnah, a Philistine, of the enemy terrorist camp. He's like, hey, Dad, get her for me. Where's the real sensitive man right here? Get her for me. What do you mean? Those are the people who are attacking our people and burning our villages. I like her. She looked good. <sighs> so he, he storms his way. And as he goes over, he not only meets this woman from Timnah, he has this you know, whole drunken party of valid violating one of the three things he committed in his Nazarite vow. He decides then, hanging out with all these people who did terrible things, but not to him, just to his countrymen and family, he decides he's going to marry her. On his way home, he's now in close proximity for the Philistines for the first time in his life. And God is going to use this to give him a taste of just how vile they are, because now it's going to affect him. On his way home, he comes across a lion. And it says God comes upon him, he grabs this line, fights him in hand-to-hand combat, rips him open, throws him down. Don't inconvenience me! Don't mess with me! Leaves him on the side of the hill. In fact, from that plateau, we could actually see the very road on the way to the Philistine village where that lion probably sat when I was there four or five years ago. He makes his way home. And on his way home, he tells his parents, not only is he not fighting the Philistines, he's going to marry one. And they're very disappointed. God has called you to help, to rescue, to stop, not to marry in. I don't care. After about a season, he travels back for the wedding. And now God uses another short pass. God uses his gluttony against him. Because he sees this dead lion. Remember, he's not supposed to touch dead things as a Nazarite. But inside of the lion, a, a, a beehive has formed with lots of honey. And here's a guy who can't control his anger, and he certainly can't control his appetite. He's like, oh, honey, dead thing. Me not supposed to touch that thing. Me like honey. He reaches into the carcass of a dead lion. And on his way to the Philistines, he's eating the honey. And this is another short pass God does to put him in conflict with the Philistines. As he arrives, God uses his hubris against him. He wants to prove he's not only stronger than everyone at the party, he's smarter too. I have a riddle. At the end of our wedding feast of seven days, if you can answer my riddle, I will give you 30 garments. If you can't, then you give me 30. What's the riddle? Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. 
But now the Philistines cheating and lying and threatening are going to for the first time affect him and somebody he loves because they begin to pressure his fiancée. Find out the riddle. Find out the riddle. You better tell us. And she's crying on him. If you really love me, we're really going to get married. You tell me. I don't tell anybody. I don't tell anybody. Come on. If you really love me. Fine. Here it is. Not only that, but the Philistines tell her, you will tell us the name of the answer to the riddle or we will burn you to the ground. We will burn your father. We will burn your family. This is common treachery amongst the Philistines. But now it doesn't affect somebody somewhere. It's affecting Samson's fiance. And his future father-in-law. And God used a series of short passes to put Samson in proximity to the terrorist he's supposed to be fighting. He comes to the final day of the ceremony. He says, all right, what's the answer? To which one of the Philistines says, it's easy. What is stronger than a lion and what is sweeter than honey? Obviously, it's honey in the belly of a lion. Samson erupts. How dare you? You got this answer by plowing with my heifer. Which I don't recommend calling your fiancé a heifer, by the way. I just said uh, it's not really a great way to start a marriage. But that's his line. You plowed with my heifer. That's it. I'll get your garments. But now he's angry. But it's still an egocentric anger. You manipulated me. You lied to me. You got involved in me. You embarrassed me. You threatened my spouse. But all of this is starting to get him finally in contact with the things he should be fighting for. He storms off. And now God uses ego against him. He finds the first 30 Philistines he can find, kills them in this vicious attack, grabs their garments, storms his way back, and says, there you go. Doesn't finish the wedding, because he's so angry, storms off, leaves her at the altar, and on his way home. And God will use that egomaniac to accomplish his purposes. After a season, he decides, I'm calm now, I'm settled down. And when you're driven by egocentric anger, here's the thing. If you're fine, everyone else will be fine. You don't care how they feel. I'm fine now. Everybody else should just adapt. That's how egocentric anger works. Now, some of us have passive-aggressive egocentric anger, and we shake our fingers at the active ones. But I would guess that we all have these versions. We're walking on tiptoes around mom. Don't say that. So we all have different versions. So don't be shaking your finger at one person. We all have these in us. He storms his way back. He's calmed down. He's not storming yet. He makes his way back to his fiance's house, and he's brought the equivalent of flowers in those days. He brings a goat. He knocks on the door. I've come for my wife. I brought her goat. I'm sure that makes up for the whole season I've been gone and leaving her at the altar. To which the father says, I thought you hated her. Why would you think that? Uh, you stormed off, and you killed a bunch of people, and you got mad, and you said that uh, she's a heifer. He is totally clueless on how in the world what he's done would in any way they've come to that conclusion because he's such an egomaniac. Fine! Now what I do will be justified because of what you've done to me, you Philistines. You married her off to the best man? So mad! He goes off and he finds 300 foxes. How did he find these? I don't know. How long did it take? It doesn't say. In fact, this is one of the things that I just think shows the Bible's true. You wouldn't make this stuff up. Now, did, did the Philistines keep them like pets, like dogs, so you could find them? Did he find litters of them in caves? We don't know. But he finds 300 foxes, ties them together, puts a torch in between their tails, lights the torches, and sends them off into the fields of the Philistines. Now, keep in mind as you read the Bible, if you think the Bible's about doing good works, 
then you're going to read it and go, let's see, I need to be like Samson. I need to torture animals and burn people's fields down. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's how God works with very broken, dysfunctional people. He's not endorsing this behavior. He's saying, I'm using this behavior. He burns down the fields, and the Philistines now are like, who burned down our fields? It was that Samson guy, and I think he fell in love with the, one of the, the women from, from Philistines, from Timnah. The Philistines respond, and they go back, and they burn the house with his wife, or would have been wife, and father-in-law in it. And now again, he's not theoretically experiencing the deceit and lie and torture of the Philistines. It is now front and center in his life. And now for the first time, he's accomplishing God's purpose as a four-star general who's finally engaged in the war against terrorism rather than sitting on the sidelines enjoying his own indulgences. But before he gets there, he decides, I just got to medicate. So he goes into a Philistine town. He's visiting a prostitute. They come and gather. They try and stop him. He bursts forth. He grabs the, the gate of the city, throws the gate of the city off, says, nobody can stop me. And they go, we've got to figure out how to stop this guy. How do we use his weaknesses against him? Well, he's got a real problem with lust. He was at a prostitute's house. Let's get a woman named Delilah. And Delilah seduces him, the Philistine. And she tries to get the secret out of him. He's already touched dead things. He's already drinks all the time. But the one thing God has graciously continued to give him strength is that he hasn't cut his hair. And Delilah tricks him into saying, well, the one Nazarite vow I haven't broken yet is I haven't cut my hair. One evening she cuts his hair. People storm in, and he, as usual, how dare you interrupt me! He goes to push them, and God says, I'm going to do to you what I did to the nation. You have thrown out my playbook. I'm going to step back and remove my blockers from your life, and I'm going to let you get bulldozed by the things I told you to fight against. And sadly, Samson, in a tragic state of his life, steps down in the Philistines, gouge out his eyes. The last thing he sees is Delilah and the Philistines gathered around as they cut out his eyes, and he's now blind. And ironically, this short pass to his blindness will be the thing that finally gets him to reflect on his life. The Philistines will use him like an animal to push this grinder. I got a chance to see one of these grinders when I was in Israel And all day long, he's blind. A life that is so unexamined and so poorly lived, but now in his brokenness, he has to reflect. Why did I waste so much of my time and my life? Why didn't I care about other people? Why didn't I see how wicked these terrorists were? Why didn't I fight for my family and my friends? God, why? how did I drift so far from you? How did I get to this place how did I let my appetites take control of everything that's in me it's in these stages he finally reflects on his life and his anger and his purpose and he begins to be humbled he begins to cry out to God in a way he never has before he begins to wonder what he was meant for and what he was designed for the Philistines decide to bring him to the equivalent of a Super Bowl in that day, this massive gathering of all the military commanders and all the military leaders. And as they gather together in this arena, God has been softening Samson's heart. They stand him between two pillars, one on the left, one on the right. But before that, they parade him before the people. Look how our gods are better than his God. We defeated the mighty Samson. And they're there mocking him and spitting upon him, making a public arena of him, stacking him, killing him between two of these pillars, mocking him. And it's here he says, God, I finally get it. My whole life, I've been angry. 
And my anger has always been about my own ego. But God, I finally get that my life should have been about others. You go first. You need to be protected. You need to be helped. So God, if you will help me, I am a four-star general. And you have placed me in the most strategic, behind-the-scenes place ever in history. I am behind enemy lines. And I have the largest gathering of the terrorist leaders. This is the watch list. This is the terrorist watch list. And they're all gathered in one place. And God, it will cost me my life, but I finally am getting it. Here's what death is about. Samson's death. Sacrificing for others is the ultimate Super Bowl. Giving unto others, caring for others, dying to self, putting other people's needs ahead of your your own, fighting for the injustices of the world, making other people's needs more important. He finally gets it. And it took him being blinded before he could see. It took him reflecting before he could finally understand how much of his life had been wasted. He's like, God, sacrificing for others, a you-go mentality, being driven by you-go, you-go, you-go. If you will give me my strength one last time, I will fulfill the destiny you have for me. This is the equivalent of a Marine jumping on a grenade to protect his friends. This is the equivalent of someone going to a battle of D-Day and taking on the Nazis. This is somebody who said, I am put in the place in the presence of evil and I'm willing to give of myself so that all who die in this place will no longer terrorize my friends and my family. Because the architecture, if you study the architecture of the Philistines, sure enough, they always began by erecting two pillars, and then all of the support beams from all of the different structures in the building all leaned on these two beams, to which they placed him right between. And he pushes those beams out and says, let me die with the Philistines. And that day, as the roof came tumbling down, he eliminated the top thousand terrorist list of his day. And said, instead of living for myself, I will give of myself to protect others. And in this incredible military strategy of God's playbook, God used his hubris, his ego, his gluttony, and his lust to put him in a place where he would finally experience the things he had insulated himself from and care about others. And I think the reflection for you and I is to go back to the type of anger that exists. While bad anger is always motivated by ego, good anger is motivated by other-centeredness, what I call ego. And I'd like to encourage you for the next week to reflect every time you get angry. To ask yourself, what am I driving? Am I driving an ego all the time? The way I interact with people, the way I get mad, what I get mad about? What am I driving? What's driving my anger? You see, many of us, it's going to take a tragedy in our career, a tragedy in our personal life before we take time to slow down. And God doesn't want you to have to be blinded by a grinder, but he's willing to do that to deal with what's broken in you, to take the cancer out if he has to. He wants us to reflect on our lives more. Why do I get so angry? Why did I react that way to my spouse? Why did I say that to my employee? God, help me. What's driving my anger these days? Help me with this. Fix this in me. Am I driving my anger or is my anger driving me? You see, your anger almost always traces back to your idol. We get angry about the things in our life that are most important. And when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, that's called an idol, you will be angry at the very thing that drives you. 
I can't believe you said something about my looks. I can't believe I got criticized about my place at work. You get angry because it's not just something that's being attacked. It's your identity being attacked. Now, here's the truth. I'm going to say this. You go, yeah, I probably should do some reflection. But you're not going to. And I'm not going to. We're going to leave here and we're going to go back to our life. And let me tell you, they just did a study in 2014. I think the Washington Post presented on why we don't reflect on our thoughts and our life. Why we don't. It takes this kind of tragedy before we walk around for months and think about our life. They did a study and they asked men and women to sit in a room for 15 minutes with their own thoughts. No phones, no YouTube. You have to sit quietly for 15 minutes and think about your own life and your own thoughts. Didn't matter what age, from 16 to 70, nobody wanted. It was very uncomfortable. I feel very awkward. I don't like being in a space with my own thoughts, with no noise, with no music. I said, well, this is interesting. They did multiple ages. It came across again. People don't like to reflect on their life. So then they said, I wonder if people would choose pain over this. So they gave them a self-shocker and said, you can either sit here for 15 minutes reflecting in your own thoughts, asking yourself what's going on, what are you thinking about, or you can electrocute yourself. (laughs) 15 minutes is all they had to wait. 25% of women, 25% of women would rather electrocute themselves than to reflect on their own thoughts. 67% of guys. (laughs) This is much better than thinking about my life, thinking about what's going on. Speaking of, isn't that statistic shocking? Speaking of shocking, I'll invite the band to come up. It's going to take discipline because there's something in us that does not want to think about our life and our motivations where we're headed. But God wants to use you to fulfill an incredible thing. God wants you to experience the Super Bowl of an other-centered life. And ultimately, the greatest example of that is Jesus, because the Old Testament is really about Jesus. Because Jesus had anger, but his righteous anger. When he came with his whip to the temples, because people were exploiting the poor, the powerful were using their power to exploit the powerless. They were cheating them. And Jesus got angry about it in a Hugo-centered anger. Jesus was marched and paraded just like Samson was. Only he had not done anything wrong. And he was mocked. And they said, look, the Greek gods are better than the gods. We're going to crucify your Messiah. And they placed him not between two pillars, but between two thieves. And he prayed on the cross. He prayed things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he gave of himself on the cross. And it came crashing down upon him. But who he crushed were the forces of evil, the forces of shame, the forces of guilt, the forces of evil. All of that got crushed that day on the cross so that he could be liberated. And he wasn't found in the wreckage. For three days later, he came out out of the wreckage. And he said, as I changed my body from dead to alive, I can change your heart. I can change your emotion. I can change your life. You too can have a resurrection. If you don't have power over your anger, I have the power you're looking for. I have the might you're looking for. I have what you need. I am the ultimate Samson. And Brandon Marshall, as out of control as he was, it wasn't medication that rescued him. It wasn't his therapy that rescued him. What he said is it was encountering this person of Jesus that took him from flirting with disaster to having a song in his life that changed everything. Let's watch.
remember taking a flight from Denver to Atlanta, and I had my Bible, and uh, I guess I was trying to read it, you know, and there was this lady, she said, are you a Christian? Why would she ask this? Like, isn't it obvious? But the way she asked in her facial expression made me really dig a little deeper. She saw, you know, how hesitant I was, and she said, you know what, just pray for clarity. So for four years, I began to pray for clarity every single day. I was in the most dysfunctional relationship, dysfunctional marriage ever. Uh, it was horrible. You have two people who really love each other but couldn't get it right. And uh, my wife, you know, she just wasn't happy. I just thought a man was supposed to just provide. You know, I looked around and said, you have a beautiful house, you have a roof over your head. You know, we can do anything we want when we want to do it. You know, why aren't you happy? We have money in our bank account. And I just couldn't get it. I thought that's what a man was. One day my wife came home and she said, I'm going to church. And she's like, do you want to go? I said, no. So for a whole year, my wife would go to church with a friend. And I, would, I was so bitter. I was like, who is this person you're going to church with? You know, she doesn't know us. You know, you, you let people in her business. That's how bitter I was. My wife was trying to do something really positive and change things for herself and, and, and us. And I'm sitting here worried about who she's going to church with. At that moment, you know, I had friends come around and say, hey, you need to really sit down and talk to someone. You know, and I found myself at McLean Hospital for three months, away from my wife, away from my home. Every single day, every single night, I got on my knees. And I just uh, begged God for him to give me clarity. Same prayer. After a month and a half being up there, you know, it was like, man, I'm feeling something I never felt before. God's revealing himself to me in, in ways he never, you know, revealed himself to me. I remember having worship in my car by myself, listening to praise music. Like, this is amazing. Like, I'm driving down the highway with my hands up. Like, what is this that I'm feeling? Like, I've been praying clarity for four years. I've been praying for this cycle to be broken for four years. And it's happened. started talking and expressing herself and praying. She just felt something. She was like, this is a different man. And uh, months later, when she found home, she said, I really was there to tell you that, you know, I wasn't coming home. You know, so I'm just so thankful that I had a praying wife because I don't know where I would be. I was able to call my father and say, man, dad, you know, we're in this cycle, but this is how we can fix it. A year later, he ended up giving his life to Christ. My brother gave his life to Christ. My mother gave her life to Christ. My sister gave her life to Christ. We're stuck in this cycle, but we're stuck in the cycle because we don't understand the root of it. For us, we figured out what the root of it was, and that was the absence of Jesus in our, in our homes, and now he's the center of everything that we do. I don't know which one of those moments you most identify with, whether it's the ego or the gluttony or the hubris or the lust. I sort of find myself in a lot of places in Samson's story. And here's the beauty of the message of the Bible. It's not go live like Samson. It's that Jesus works with people who live like Samson. And wherever you are and wherever you're stuck, God says, hey, I love you enough to pull out the cancer of ego. But let's do it before you get to the end of your life. <laughs> 
let's do it before you have to be blinded and go around on the grinder. May your song, may our song be the song of that song. The song that I think Samson might have sung as he stood there, these last moments, God, I want my life to glorify you, to matter, to serve other people. He closed in prayer. Maybe you just want to ask God, God, help me, rescue me, forgive me. I want to follow your playbook. You can pray along with me if you'd like, just something like this. God, I'm broken. And I want my life song to sing a different tune. I believe in the ultimate Samson who died for me. And I invite your strength to come into my life. Because I don't have the strength to overcome my appetites. Forgive me. Love me. And God, thank you for working with me. Father, I just ask that our church will be a place where we can be honest, we can be open about our brokenness, and that your spirit will continue to work, that we will not look down our noses and self-righteousness at other people who struggle, that we'll be honest that we all struggle. And we're so thankful for God who doesn't wait for us to have our act together, but works with us in the midst of the mess. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We finished up Playbook today. Next week we start a brand new series called Christmas Quest. We're going to journey to the royal homeland for the next six weeks. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you knew the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hey. Thanks again.